Welcome back to Murder and My Family True Crimes. I'm Sandy. Unfortunately, I am alone today. I did record this episode a week ago with Kyle. However, during editing, you could not hear him or understand him. So I felt it best that I re-record it. And it's taken me about a week to get back in here to do it. We've been very busy uh, with all the kids things going on. And Joe's older two children are getting married this month and next month five weeks apart for two weddings, so it's been very, very busy. But I wanted to share this case with you because I had done all the research about it, and Joe is actually the one that told me about it when I first moved to Massachusetts because it had occurred right before I moved here, and it's in a town one away from where we currently live. And it was in a town called Reading, Massachusetts. And this is the story of Elaine and Edward Donahue. So Redding is, has a population of about 25,000 people, and it's a good commuter town into Boston. There's a train right in the middle of the town, and it's right off the highway. Elaine Donahue was a 44-year-old obstetric nurse at Boston Regional Medical Center in Stoneham, which was just a town away from where they lived. And Edward was a 45-year-old stay-at-home father and an accountant, although he was not working at the time of this incident. They had four children, a second-grade boy, a fourth-grade boy, a middle school girl, and a high school girl at the time that this incident occurred. I'm not going to give their names because it was difficult to find them to begin with, and they were minors when this happened, and I know that they have tried really hard um, to keep out of the media and to stay private, so I'm going to keep their privacy. So this instance, incident, on September 18, 1997, Elaine didn't show up to her job as the obstetric nurse, and her coworkers were immediately worried. Elaine was always on time. They called her husband, and he said she had gone out shopping before work and would probably be there soon. With no sign of Elaine after an hour and a half, the head nurse called Elaine's husband again, then called the police. Elaine's coworkers were immediately suspicious of Ed and had no problem making that known to everyone. They knew she was the breadwinner of the family and she worked extra shifts to cover his gambling debts. They didn't think he was ever physically abusive to her, but they were aware Elaine was scared of him in some way. When police interviewed Elaine's family, friends, and coworkers after her disappearance, they all said she would never abandon her children or her job. She had high moral character and was a stable, responsible person. There was no history of any emotional problems, and she didn't have a history of leaving her family without some type of notice. They also didn't come up with any evidence of a romantic affair with anyone. And as we all know, when there's a disappearance of a spouse, the first person that's always looked at is the other spouse, whether it's a male or female. And many, many times it always includes an affair or another person that has come into their lives. So that was one of the first things that they were curious about with Elaine. Maybe she had started an affair and run off with some man, but there was absolutely no evidence of that. So that was kind of cut off right there. 
Police found Elaine's car abandoned at Redstone Shopping Plaza in Stoneham, which is the same town where she worked. However, the driver's seat was pushed to the far back position, and she was a petite woman. It was clear to the police that she was not the last person to be sitting in the driver's seat. There was also no activity on her credit cards bank, or bank accounts, so if she had been out shopping, it didn't appear that she had bought anything. Elaine's best friend had said that she, Elaine told her years earlier, if anything happens to me, don't let Ed get away with it, which is interesting because it said this was years earlier, and I don't know how long the gambling issue had been going on and how long their marriage didn't seem to be going well, but she did say that this year's earlier to other people. Her friends thought from the beginning he was involved in her disappearance. Neighbors said Edward was a good guy. They described him as mild-mannered and a good dad. They sent their children over to the Donahue house to play and never thought twice about it. Ed took his kids to Cub Scout, carpooled with other families, and did volunteer work in the community. According to caselaw.finelaw.com, Elaine and Edward had marital problems due to his excessive gambling addiction. Ed had admitted to police he and his wife were rarely intimate anymore. They were staying together just for the children. Elaine had agreed to stay in the relationship, but she had stipulated that she had to have control over all the finances. This became a very contentious and frustrating for Ed because she was so strict on the money and didn't even give him money for such mundane, mundane things as getting gas or fast food. She really had a control of the money. So during the investigation into Elaine's disappearance, police found many of Ed's actions odd or suspicious things that made the police focus their investigation on him as a suspect pretty fast into this investigation. One thing he did that was suspicious is he failed to answer his phone quite often, where most people whose spouse was missing would answer every single phone call, no matter what time of day or no matter where they're at. They wouldn't want to miss any important phone calls. And he apparently didn't have a problem with that. On the same day she disappeared, Edward cashed a $900 check, even though people were aware that he wasn't allowed to handle the money, according to the couple's agreement. So that was suspicious. Uh, the other thing that he did the same day she disappeared, he was seen riding a bicycle near the same location his wife's car was found. When Edward was asked by police the last time he rode a bike, he answered, quote, who can put me on a bicycle, unquote. So that is suspicious. He didn't even answer if he was on it. He just said, who could put me on a bike? So on September 20th, Elaine had been missing for two days. Police asked Ed if they could do a canine search of the home. He declined. On October 8, 1997, the police asked Edward to tell them in what area his wife's body could be found. He responded, she's not in an area. That is suspicious. On October 9th, 
had declined consent for a canine search of his home again. This whole time, so it's been close to a month now, Elaine was missing. The police conducted aerial searches. They used cadaver-sniffing dogs to search the area where her car was found and in the woods around the family home. They went into the Donahue home, but Edward would not allow them to do a thorough search, so they just did the main area where they could see. The media broadcast Elaine's picture everywhere and told her story all over the news. Edward was on the news pleading for her return. There were flyers put in hospitals, hotels, shelters, places of transportation. There was no response to any of that information, and this only increased the police's suspicion of Edward. On October 14th, so Elaine had been missing close to a month at this point, police renewed their request for the canine search of the family home. At first, Edward declined, but then finally gave in. The police agreed to conduct the search after the kids left for school at 8.15 on Friday, October 17th. So he agreed, he made the agreement on the 14th that they could do the research on the 17th. So on October 16th, the day before the search of the home, Edward purchased a 50-gallon Rubbermaid container. At the store, he asked the clerk, if they had anything bigger. They did not, and the clerk found this suspicious, so he called the police after Edward left. On October 17th, at 2 in the morning, approximately six hours before the scheduled search, police were surveilling Edward. He had been observed to be visually scanning his backyard, looking around. So we could reasonably assume he was looking to see if there was anyone out there or watching him. And clearly he didn't see anybody. So he decided the coast was clear and he dragged a mattress that had its cloth covering ripped off through the backyard and into the woods near his property. Later that morning, which was a month after her disappearance on October 17th, so approximately six hours after the mattress was dragged out, police were finally able to conduct a search of Edward's car and home. What they found was disturbing. Specifically trained cadaver-sniffing dogs found traces of human remains, blood, bodily fluid, or decomposition in the trunk of Edward's car, in the master bedroom closet, in the basement, and on the mattress that he tried to hide in the backyard. They also found bloodstains on the master bedroom windows, walls, floor, headboard. When I say stains, obviously it's not dripping with blood, but they can detect the smallest amounts. And you figure you can miss a tiny little dot very easily. They also found a bag full of mattress stuffing that tested positive for blood. So that clearly had come from a mattress he had thrown out in the backyard. They found Elaine's purse, which is suspicious because if she had left for work like Edward had said and gone shopping before work, she would have her purse with her. They found the receipt for the 50-gallon Rubbermaid container he had purchased the day before. And the most helpful thing that they found were two documents related to a rental at the Easy Minage Storage Facility in Linfield. Linfield is one town over from Reading, the town where they lived. 
with those receipts and the other evidence found, they were able to obtain a search warrant for the storage facility. With the search warrant, they conducted the search of the Easy Mini Storage Facility. That is where they found the partially decomposed body of Elaine Donahue. She'd been missing for over a month. She was found in the 50-gallon Rubbermaid storage bin Edward had purchased. Inside the Rubbermaid container, they found a thumbprint that belonged to Edward, and they also found a footprint that matched Edward inside the storage facility. So that is pretty damning evidence that he was involved and knowing that the storage container and the Rubbermaid bin had just been purchased, you can assume that he was hiding her remains somewhere in the house. On October 19th, two days after the search of his home and car, Edward was being held in a jail cell at the Reading Police Department when his sister-in-law came to visit him. He said, I just lost it, and there's no excuse or explanation. Although it's not a direct confession, a jury could reasonably assume that it is a confession. So on Monday, October 20th, so they did the search on Friday, he was arraigned on Monday on murder charges. He pleaded innocent and was held without bail. 25 of Elaine's co-workers attended the hearing. They wanted to see the man who attended vigils with them and pleaded for her return. One nurse was quoted saying, quote, I can't believe he led us all down the street like that. He walked with us from Reading to Stoneham with his children in the front. So this is kind of my crazy connection to the story. I was at work and I was in the lunchroom with a coworker who is pretty new to my school and she happens to live in Reading. So we were just chatting and I said, oh, how long have you lived there? She said about 20 years. So I said, oh, do you happen to know who Elaine and Edward Donahue are? And she practically finished my sentence. She was like, you wouldn't believe it. I worked at this elementary school. I had their fourth grade son in my class the year that that happened. She's like, all the details are so close to me, I, as if it happened yesterday. So she said within days of the mother going missing, there was an open house at the school, the elementary school. They all did a collection to help the family and to help them out, you know, with food and expenses. Remember, Edward wasn't working. And they gave the cash to Edward. It was said that he took the money, put it in his back pocket, and went and played Keno. And we know he had a gambling problem, so we can reasonably assume that that might be correct. She also said that people knew, that knew Ed, said in all the years they've known him, they had not seen him on a bike. And it sounded as if maybe a couple people had seen him on a bike that day because it was so shocking. The whole month he was missing, the children went to school as usual, which is what any family should do. You should try to keep your children as much of routine as you can. And the day the search warrant was conducted, they heard helicopters flying over the school for hours. And one of the little girls in the class said, maybe they found your mom. 
for the little boy. And this is like the most heart-wrenching piece to me. Um, I, I can't even imagine after the fact how everyone felt with all that. So now we know what happened, but at the time they didn't. And you can think that that little boy might have had so much hope that day. So at the end of the school day, uh, the teacher I knew had to take the two elementary Donahue children down to the gymnasium waiting for somebody to pick them up because they couldn't send them home. The streets were lined with news crews and there was helicopters still all in the area and it was just chaotic. So eventually um, the pastor from their church came and picked them up and then the boys went and waited at the church for their aunt because their aunt did not live in state and she had to come and pick up the kids. So the question I had about it was, how did the kids get to the school in the morning, the day of the search, if the police watched Mr. Donahue drag the mattress into the woods at 2 a.m.? So what I'm thinking happened is that they watched it but didn't do anything because they didn't have the search warrant ready yet. It, they couldn't use it until... Um, 8.15 in the morning, and they didn't want to tip him off anymore. So I'm thinking, but I don't know this for a fact, that they just kind of waited on that and watched the mattress, made sure it stayed there, and then conducted the search after the children left. That's what I'm concluding. So anyway, the kids never went back to school after that day, as I would imagine that would happen. And to my friend's recollection, the three younger children moved to Pennsylvania to live with their mom's sister, and the oldest son moved south somewhere to live with the father's family. I don't know the details of why they were split up, but I know that the older one was um, in her, his later years of high school. So anyway, during the trial, Dr. Keith Ablo, a psychiatrist who evaluated Edward, testified to the following. So now this is what we know happened after the fact. So he said, quote, what happens is on the morning he tells me my wife had worked until about 7 p.m. the night before and had gone to bed at 8. She was sleeping a little bit late. He usually rises early. He was getting the kids ready for school and did so. They left. He walked past his office. In the office, he noticed a bat. He went in, picked, it up, picked up the bat. He walked upstairs, standing outside the bedroom. His wife was inside sleeping in the bedroom. He says for 30 minutes to an hour, he stood outside the room with the impulse. You have to do it. The strong thought, the impulse, you have to do it. Seizing him at the same time as he responded, you can't do it. You have to do it. You can't do it. This builds. And he stands there for 30 minutes. Then he goes numb. He hits his wife with the bat, but is surprised not only by the event, but how much damage he caused, how bloody it is. Says, I could not have done this to himself. I could not have done that. And then in a sequence, separated perhaps by 10 or 15 minutes, cleans the bat, and noticing that his wife is suffering, he delivers an additional or additional blows. He says for her suffering to end, and he prays to God to take his wife, and that's what he says happened. 
So evidence at the trial showed Ed hit his wife over the head with a baseball bat while she slept. Then he went downstairs, cleaned the bat off and put it away. Then he went back upstairs, realizing she's still alive. So he went back downstairs, retrieved the bat again, went back upstairs and hit her over the head again, either once or twice. Then he wrapped her in blankets and plastic wrap to hide the scent and hid her in their cluttered basement. So we know from when he bought the Rubbermaid bin, she was probably down there for about a month. In May of 1998, Edward Donahue was found guilty and convicted of murder in the first degree and received life in prison without the possibility of parole. There is no death sentence or death penalty in Massachusetts. Edward's lawyer, George Murphy, didn't deny Edward killed his wife, but he felt he was mentally ill, so he shouldn't be held responsible. I'm not a psychiatrist, he says. I'm a lawyer. But I haven't sat next to someone for three weeks who hasn't even asked me once, how's it going, or what do you think? He just sat there. Is he a sick man? Yeah. So family and friends of Elaine said he is far from insane. He conducted searches and pleaded for his wife's safe return while her body lay in their basement with the children home. He took cash donations, offerings of food, and the most disturbing to me is the hugs of sympathy from family and friends. Nobody could have done what he did and be insane, said Marilyn Sarantino, a neighbor. It is a lame excuse, and he got what he deserved. So during the family impact statements, they said, we've had months of torture, sleepless nights, stress, and much anxiety. Now it's the defendant's turn to suffer. And in 2000, he lost his appeal. So that is the story of Elaine and Edward Donahue from Reading, Massachusetts, which is not very far from where I live. I found this one very interesting to me because Joe had talked about it for years, so I did the research, and then I found out that I work with somebody who knew the family pretty well. So this was fascinating to me. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Please email me at murderandmyfamily at gmail.com with any other recommendations for stories. And thank you so much for listening. Please press the follow button. And I hope to record again in a couple weeks. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>